Welcome to Artists of New England. This is a podcast created to inspire you on your journey of artistic expression. Whether you are a career artist, a teacher, an emerging artist, or hobbyist, you can learn and gain support from your peers. We will explore the symbiotic relationship between these groups, lending insight and empathy towards each other. We will discover the where, when, why, and how of the creative process of artists living and working in New England, with occasional bonus interviews with gallery owners, collectors of fine art, and art historians. Perhaps today's show will bring you the aha moment you've been waiting for. Welcome to Artists of New England with your host, Laura Kessner-Keen. Today, I am tickled and delighted to have Eric Rhodes from Austin, Texas. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Tickled and delighted. That's the first time I've had that today. (laughs) I am so honored to have you on the show. And thank Thank you you. so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to to do this. So I'm sure all of my listeners will be so thrilled. Never too busy for you. Oh, thank you. So I don't even know where to start. If I give a list of all the things you do, it would take up the whole show. So I've kind of condensed it <laughs> to give a little bit of an intro to people who actually might not know who you are, um, which is unlikely if they... No, no, no. They're, they, you know, I... If they not, live in well, the 21st century, I would assume they know. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I really am not all that well known. I, you know, I, I'm known by who knows me, but there's, most people don't. So oh. I'm... I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll start there. Um, You're an artist, first and foremost, which is why you are here on this show, an entrepreneur, a marketer, a writer, an active speaker, consultant, and advocate in the radio, art, and technology industry. Most people are going to know you from your Streamline Publishing, which has many, many uh, drop-down box, right? You've got the Fine Art Connoisseur Magazine, the Plein Air Magazine, you have several online magazines, Fine Art Today, Realism Today, Outdoor Painter, American Watercolor, not to mention the Plein Air Salon, which I think many, many people follow. The Plein Air Podcast, always so informative and well done. The Plein Air and Figurative Conventions and Expo, and your book, Make More Money Selling Your Art. So, wow, so much. And not only that, but you did such an amazing pivot with COVID and did... Um, Plein Air Live, which I attended, which was phenomenal. Oh, you did. Thank you. I sure did. And then Realism Live and Watercolor Live is coming up in January. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, hang on, <laughs> 229 days, right? Today, Facebook Live. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's been that long. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is phenomenal. And that's everyday noon Facebook pages, the Streamline um, Streamline art video. Art I, video. you know, I, I did about uh, 215 ish, seven days in a row uh, with nonstop. And then after about 215 days, I started going to five days a week on that because ah, okay. uh, it was getting to be a little bit tough to not have weekends off with my family. And so uh, I'm now taking weekends off, but I am doing the free video samples, the three o'clock video samples every day. That's still seven days a week. And I'm hosting that, but I'm not hosting the 12 noon show. Oh, okay. Okay. On weekends. Yeah. Right. Okay, great. All that. And here you are with us. So this is also, as I said, a great honor. Thank you. I'm very, this is fun. So I've listened to your podcast. I read Sunday coffee. I have not been to a plenary event. I have been to plenary live online. Um, 
so much to talk about. Where do we start? So can we start back with where did you grow up and what is the earliest recollections you have of anything artistic? I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, my recollections of art, probably my mom. My mom took lessons at a local Y or something. And um, so she would sit at the table and paint. And I would sit there and paint with her, usually in acrylics. Uh, she was probably painting in oils. I don't really remember. And uh, I would paint rocks. I thought it was cool to paint pictures on rocks. And I'd go out and find old pieces of wood and paint pictures on old pieces of wood, things like that. And I, I did that a lot when I was a kid with her. Wow, that's awesome. And then um, how did that develop? Did you, clearly you didn't go into, I do know enough of your story. I've heard snippets here and there, never heard the whole thing. But you went into other areas and not art right away. Yeah, well, that's right. I um, First off, I... Let me just give you one other first recollection of art. And that is that uh, in, I want to say probably 1965-ish, well, it had to be 65. My, my dad <clears throat> came in one morning and woke us all up. He said, get in the car, we're going on vacation. And he hadn't told us, which is how he worked, because he never knew if he could have the time. Okay. And so we got in the car and we drove to New York City and we drove, to, we went to the World's Fair in 1965 World's Fair. And I remember driving up to some hotel in New York City and staying in this fancy hotel. And one of the things that we did on that trip is we went to a museum. And I think now in hindsight, it was probably the Frick, but I, you know, because I was at the Frick maybe a couple of years ago, and I, I wandered in and there was this room with a giant painting, you know, the whole wall. I mean, it probably had to be a 30 foot painting. And it was uh, pirates having a sword fight on the on the deck of a ship. <laughs> and, and I flashed back to remembering seeing that painting when I was 13 years old or whatever age I was at the time, and thinking I uh, I never knew that something like that could be done in a painting. So that that's when painting really registered for me. And it appealed to me because, of course, all 13-year-old 13 13-year-old boys like swords and pirates and swashbucklers and that kind of thing. And so it for me, it was, uh, it made art come alive. And so that, that seed was planted, but I never did anything with it. Wow. And then uh, my dad being an entrepreneur, I kind of followed that path. I didn't really ever think about art as a, uh, a living. I, I don't think I, I ever really even knew anybody, maybe one person that made art as a living. Mm. And um, so I became an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, I got out of school and immediately pursued my passions there and spent my life as an entrepreneur pretty much until I was uh, about, I would say it was about 38, 39 when uh I went to an art store. I, I don't know why. I just wandered into an art store and I bought some paints, probably acrylic paints. And uh, I told my wife I was going to start painting and I, and I was copying some photographs. But I remember being very frustrated because I could not get uh, what was in the photograph or what was in my head on the canvas. You know, the paint was lumpy and I didn't know how to handle it. And I just didn't know anything about it. So I remember expressing my frustration and my wife bought me a art lesson uh, at the Armory Art Center in West Palm Beach. 
And I went into the art lesson. Uh, this is my 40th birthday present. And the guy said, you know, just express yourself, just throw the paint around, you know, get a lot of color, do whatever feels right. And I, and I kind of sheepishly raised my hand and I said, um, uh, excuse me, but you know, I, this isn't really what I want to do. Can I, like, I'd like to learn how to paint something that's real, like a bottle or a flower or, you know, something like that. And he, he declared to me, he said, no one does that anymore. That's old school. That's, that's been done. You don't want to do what's been done. I said, no, I do. I want to learn how to do it. He says, well, this is the wrong place for you. So I resigned the class and I went home and I took all my, my stuff and I threw it in a box and I threw it in the basement and I didn't touch it for probably a year. And then uh, one day I was in a taxi cab. I had, I locked my keys in the car. I was in Miami. I locked my keys in the car. I had to take a cab home. I didn't think to call a locksmith. And so I got in this cab and I'm in the cab for an hour, hour and a half. And this guy is driving me and why he was in Miami on that moment in time, because he was a cab from West Palm beach. And I told him this story. I told him I didn't want to get bad lessons. I wanted to get good lessons. He says, well, there's a guy that I study with in West Palm Beach by the name of Jack Jackson. And he said, Jack Jackson's in the lineage of Jerome. Now, I didn't know who Jerome was at the time. Wow. He said, you know, Jerome uh, taught this person who taught that person who taught this person who taught this guy. Yeah. And I, I didn't know about any of that lineage stuff at the time. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. So, he made it sound like this guy was such an important deal and so impressive that I waited a full year before I went uh, to check out his class because I was totally intimidated by it. And I remember um, I finally decided one Saturday I'd go to the class and I hadn't talked to him, hadn't done anything. And I just signed up through the, through the art center. And, and I stood outside in the parking lot. Well, first off I sat in the car and it's like, should I get out? Should I not get out? I don't know if I can do this. You know, I, what am I getting myself into? You know, our self-talk. Yeah. And then uh, I walked up to the door and then I turned away from the door. Then I walked up to the door and I turned away. And finally, I, I just held my breath and I went in. And when I went in, it was like the angels were singing, you know, ah, <laughs> because uh, there were, there were, you know, 10 or 15 people set up. Most of them were women. Most of them were retired age women. And I was about, no, I was 40, 41, 42 at the time, I guess. And these people were all doing what looked to me like really beautiful master copies of famous paintings, which was what the class was all about. And I looked around, I just stood in the doorway and I looked around and I thought, I can't do this. And I turned around and I walked out. <laughs> and thankfully, I mean, this man literally saved my life, uh, thankfully, because he goes, woohoo, can I help you? And I said, uh, oh, you know, I, I, I heard about this class from this guy. I told him the guy's name. I said, but I can't do this. He said, come here, come here. Let me show you something. He immediately got me engaged. He said, listen, you can do this. It'll take you 18 months to get to the level that those people are doing. He says, but if you give me Saturdays and maybe Tuesdays for 18 months, he said, you'll be knocking it out of the park by then. And he said, let me show you something. Immediately got me engaged and he showed me how to do what he called a Leonardo grid, where you basically gridded a painting and then figured out how to transfer it. So he had me do that. And then he said, okay, now that you've got it transferred, now we're going to turn that into a painting. I mean, he immediately got me engaged, got me doing a, a black and white study. 
and uh, he just sucked me in. And then he worked with me and, and I, you know, he opened my eyes to art. And that was the moment that my life changed because uh, it was somebody who did what I wanted to do. And he taught me how to do it. And he was tough, but he had patience. And so I studied with him for, oh, you know, many, many years. And um, I went, I remember being on a business trip. I know I'm rambling, but I went, I went on this business trip and um, I went to the San Francisco Museum, the Palace of Fine Arts, and I saw a Bouguereau painting for the first time in my life in person. We had been copying Bougereaux's from posters, but you can't see, you know, when I saw it in person, I could see the veins under the thin layer of skin, and I couldn't figure out how he did that. And I, my wife was with me, and I stood there and I wept. Wow. And tears came down my eyes. I still tear up when I think about it. And the reason I wept is because, first off, I now could see art differently because this man had opened my eyes. But secondly, I wept because I realized what Bouguereau had to go through to get to that level of accomplishment. Here I was, you know, a year or two into it, and I wasn't any, anywhere close. And to think that, you know, that he could show the veins under the skin and the the dimensionality of the skin and the, and the, the emotion in these people, it, it just inspired me forever. And it was at that moment that I said, this is what I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to. I didn't know how or what, but that was the moment. Wow. That is a fascinating story. And, and it's wonderful because you can feel the empathy for <laughs> beginners. <laughs> you have been in the shoes of the shaking and quaking. That oh yeah. Well, and, and, and I'm working on that, that, you know, I, I have an online program. I think you mentioned it. It's called paint by note. Mm -hmm. And, and the whole goal of that program is to help people learn the keyboard, you know, and piano, uh, you know, when I took piano lessons as a kid, you had to learn, you know, this six or seven keys, whatever the notes were. Mm -hmm. And if you could learn those six or seven keys in one octave, then you could move up to the next octave and so on. And I, and I was sitting around one day and I was thinking about how do I simplify painting? And I realized that if, that if anybody could understand that it's the same thing, if you can learn seven notes, you can learn how to paint. Mm -hmm. And so I basically took painting instead of having a scale of a grayscale of white to black being 10 steps, I made it seven steps, just simple. So I could compare it to a keyboard. And the reality, most of us aren't using that much, um, that, that range of value in our paintings anywhere. Anyway, so, uh, and so I developed this program, free program online to teach people those basics and how to paint. And I mean, there are literally thousands now who have taken it and I, that I hear from them all the time. I get emails and they show me, they send me their work. It's really pretty cool. That is, that's awesome. You must be so happy when each one comes through that must be Absolutely. And I answer, I answer every email personally. I don't, you know, I, I feel if somebody took the time to, to write me that I owe them a response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's nice. So do you think that's the basic hardest thing that artists struggle with? Oh, I, you know, that's just, it's everything is a struggle. <laughs> I think, I think the hardest thing to struggle with is color. Okay. And and, and that's why I think starting with, with grayscale or black and white is really important because um, 
color complicates everything. You know, there's that old saying that uh, color gets all the credit, but value does all the work. I don't know who came up with that. Probably John Carlson in Carlson's Guide to Landscape Painting. But it it really is, I, I learned that if I can, the, you know, the first thing this guy taught me is painting a black and white and then glazing on top of it with very little color and being able to make make things look right. And I think what happens is we start out with color and we, we, you know, because we're all color junkies, we start out with a lot of color and we find ourselves fighting it, not understanding it and realizing that the color is not looking right for some reason. Of course, we don't understand color harmony. We don't understand that, you know, there's three, three levels of color, you know, it's hue, chroma and value. And, you know, the natural tendency for all of us when we, when we start painting is to make everything colorful um, and bright. And yet, the more I mature as a painter, and I got a long way to go, the more I mature, I realize that uh, the best paintings are typically not the brightest paintings. The best paintings are the ones they feel bright, but they're really gray paintings with some highlighted notes of color and some very specific uh, focal point places, and it still makes them feel bright. I mean, you look at a Joe McGurl painting, uh, one of the great painters of our time, and his paintings are really almost mostly gray, but uh, they don't look, they don't read like they're mostly gray because he knows how to manipulate the color and, and the harmony to make things really sing. So that's, I think that's, uh, I think color is the most difficult thing. Composition, um, composition, color, and values. I think part of our, our, you know, we lean towards being color junkies because there's so many amazing new colors that keep coming out. And we're like, we've got to try this, we've got to try that. Well, yeah. I'm the worst. I mean, if <laughs> your, your readers can't see it, but I have a... I, you know, I have, I probably have a thousand tubes of paint here and <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm like a kid in a candy store. You know, every time I go to the art store, I see something new. I was at the art store the other day and I saw these uh, new luminescent colors that Williamsburg puts out. And it's kind of like that feel of a fish scale. You know, you get a different color depending on the angle you look at it. Okay. And I, so I had to buy all of those and I've been experimenting <laughs> with those. And then somebody the other day told me about how, you know, if you mix the gambling radiant colors into the, you know, like you use a radiant pink into a red, it'll make it redder and lighter without, without making it look too chalky. And so, you know, I bought all those. And then somebody else told me about the fast matte colors and I bought all those, you know, it's just like, I try everything yeah. and I, you know, Williamsburg sent me a bunch of paint the other day to thank me for something. And, and like, they had a bunch of new colors. And I'm, and it's like, I'm just constantly fighting that battle. I have a, a set of colors. And uh, when I studied with McGurl, the one thing he said is, look, Eric, you got to stabilize, you got to set, set your colors, and don't get seduced by all these other things. Because what would happen is an artist would come to town that, you know, we shoot, uh, 30 uh, full-length art instruction videos a year here. And uh, so I've got all these artists staying here at the house and they're coming into the studio and we're painting together and we're, and, and you know, they're doing these videos in the studio. And 
you know, everyone's got a different palette and a different technique. And I finally had to stop going to the shoots because I'd watch, you know, I'd be at the shoot and then I'd come home and I'd change my palette. And, you know, because everything works. And uh, finally, Joe said, look, Eric, if you don't stabilize on something, it's really going to keep screwing you up. You're going you're gonna to fight this the rest of your life. And so I stabilized on his palette, and I stick with it pretty much now. I do, I do still play with some other colors, but every time you add a new color, you really need to do a new color chart, which I'm too lazy to do. But because now you need to see how that one color is going to blend in and fit with the others and how it's going to mix in. And because, you know, everything's about interactive. So I would say that if I had to, uh, if I had to be a purist about it, I'd probably go back to a, you know, three colors in white um, or, or four colors, you know, red, yellow, blue uh, and white. And then, I mean, you know, it works for Kevin McPherson. He's much more successful than most of us. And then I would, uh, uh, or the other variation is, you know, a warm and cool of each color. Yeah. But and, and that's kind of where I am. But I, you know, I, I still fight that battle. It, I mean, the paint manufacturers love me. I never, very rarely ask for anything for free, even though they usually offer. I, you know, I like to support them. They're supporting me. So I buy it from them. And I'm just, I'm, every time I go to the store, I'm buying five or six tubes of paint that I don't need. Yeah. My number one question was how, how do you interview so many people and go to, I assumed you read all the shoots for these 500 plus videos. How does that not mess with your painting? Because I've only been at these interviews and you're not, you're number 85. And every interview, you know, I go and I look at their work and I look at what they use and I listen and I, and I, and it just messes with, you know, it, it can, I mean, it can overwhelm me as a, as well, a uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I will tell you this. When I first started uh, uh, landscape painting, Jack Jackson was teaching me figurative painting. When I first started landscape painting, it's because uh, my wife had kicked me out of the house, uh, which which is another story, and um, uh, because she got pregnant with the triplets and she couldn't stand the smell of the paint, so she said, you got to stop painting in the back bedroom. Oh, yeah. And... uh, so I started taking it outdoors. I didn't know about plein air painting. Um, so I went outdoors with a card table and a studio easel and boxes and paints and, you know, all that stuff it was a miserable experience, but that led me to the whole plein air thing. Wow. But the, you know, the, the point of that is I started studying with two different artists in California. One was Charles H. White. The other was Camille Preswatic and they couldn't be more polar opposites, polar opposites. First off, Camille was a colorist is a colorist and is somewhat loose. And Charles is a traditionalist. He's very tight. Uh, and so, you know, the, if you put their things side by side, you know, one looks modern, one looks very traditional. And so I'm studying with each of them all week. I mean, you know, Charles on Wednesdays, her on Mondays. And so on Mondays, you know, I'm a colorist. And on Thursdays or Wednesdays, I'm a traditionalist. And that really screwed me up. I did that for two or three years. Now, why and did that, you do that? Why did you choose to do that? Because uh, I, I get bored easily. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's honest answer. <laughs> I, you know, and, and I liked them both and I wanted to learn them both. And I think both of them helped me. Yeah. Um, and I was actually able to bring some of what Camille taught me to Charles 
And uh, Charles, I think probably, I don't know if I brought as much to Camille, but I certainly, it, I, it helped him loosen up. And when I got him out plein air painting with me, which he hadn't done in, in a long time, that really made a big difference. And I, I think that's the eye opener for all of us is once you go outdoors, all of a sudden your painting changes. Yeah. So help me with that because, the, you know, I, I do try, I try, I try, I try. And because I try, know. Trying sounds, trying is an excuse. Yeah. Okay. That's. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> well, anytime you try, you're giving yourself an out. An out. Right. I'll. Your kids say, "Well, I'll try, Dad." No, <laughs> you will. You will do it, or you won't do it. But you're not going to try. You're going to do it, or you're not going to do it. And we, so we give ourselves an out. Plein air painting is. Um. It's really a pain in the butt. It's. It's hard to do. It's different than studio painting. It, you got to be motivated to do it. You got to get outdoors. And every time you go out, if you have to gather all your stuff and put right. your paints in a bag and put all your stuff together, you'll never go. So I have a bag packed right here that I can grab. Um, I have it in I have, we, we have the luxury of having a lake place in upstate New York. And so I have a bag packed there. It's not the same bag. Uh, I have separate paints. I have duplicates of what I need in my studio and in my plein air kit. I, if I rob from one to the other, and then I go out, you know, I've gone out and not taken my white or been missing a key brush or something like that. And so you've got to, you have to have it set up so that you just grab and go. And then, you just have to, if the mood strikes, you just have to do it. And the best way to just do it is start painting in the backyard or out the window even, because once you start looking at nature and painting nature, it changes, it really does change your paintings. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've done it. I have done it. I've done it for a couple of years, but it's very spotty and it's not, so, it is something that I do want to do regularly. Um, but just what you said, I actually did start in the yard and the neighborhood. So you know, I think that, um, I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I, mean, I don't think it's something you have to do. Okay. But I will tell you that the studio painters, I, I have motivated people who have spent their entire life painting in the studio uh, from photographs, or sometimes they're painting from life in the studio, you know, painting still life or, or people. Um, when they get outdoors, they hate it in the beginning, they're frustrated, I try to get them to stick with it. And if they will do it for two or three years, yeah. uh, it will, uh, when they're painting from photographs, those photographs will never look like photographs. So I tell a story, you've probably heard it. I had the Russian master from the, uh, he's an instructor at the great school in Moscow, the Surikov Institute. He came over and visited me and he was at my lake place and he walked into my studio at the lake and he said, that one, that one, that one, and that one. I said, what? He said, those are the four that you did from plein air. He said, everything else you did from photographs. And I was dumbfounded. How could he possibly know that? But he had, he had exactly picked them right. Well, at that moment, it made me realize how dead my photographic-based paintings were and how the more time I spent outdoors, the more it will inform all of my studio painting. And I still fight that battle because I still – don't paint outdoors enough. I do summertime. I paint a lot, but wintertime, not so much. 
And, but it, it really does help you know what to lay down and what kind of light to have, mm. what kind of form and shadow to have, because photographs lie, you know, the, the, the shadows are too dark. Uh, the actual drawing is going to be off because depending on the lens used, you know, it's the drawing's going to be off. And so that's why, you know, once you, even if you just go out and you get some color notes, you say, okay, this isn't, uh, you know, a plein air isn't ne necessarily meant to be perfect or a finished painting. It's meant to be a study and it can be a finished painting if you want to, but very few people are really qualified at the level to do a good high quality finished painting before the light moves. You know, there, there are people who do obviously. So I like to just go lay down a study and sometimes just real quickly, just try to get the color and the sense of form and the sense of light because when I'm in the studio, I, I lose that. And so now um, I cannot paint from a photograph. Right. I, yeah. I, I have uh, once in a while, I'll pull up a photographic reference of something. For instance, I I've got a New Hampshire scene that I want to paint. I was just at fall color week and it snowed and we were up at, uh, yes. at the, I don't even know what it's called, but there's a train station up there and I, I'm painting out in the snow Yeah, and everybody else is painting under the, under the protection of the eaves of the house. But the composition I wanted, I had to go stand in the snow and freeze my toes off and to get that composition. And, you know, the snow's coming down and it's like spritzing water on my oil canvas. Every, you know, I had to keep taking paper towel and blotting it off. And, but I captured it. I nailed it. I didn't, my drawing was off, but I nailed the color. And I have a photograph and the photograph, uh, I, the color is completely different. So now I can combine the two so I can get that, that photograph to inform me on my drawing. So what I'll do is I'll take a, I'll do a drawing from the photograph and then I'll take the drawing and I'll transfer the drawing to my canvas, but then I'll use the plein air study for the color on the snow and the color and the light and so on. And, and that's how I do it. But I, I cannot, I, if you held a gun to my head, I could do it, but I, I just can't go from a photograph anymore. I'm spoiled. Wow. That's wonderful. How long did that take? <laughs> I don't know. It just, ha all of a sudden it just happened one day. It was like, I was trying to work from a photo and I was frustrated. And so I just went and grabbed my studies. I don't sell any of my studies. I have, I regret it because they're my memories of, of painting locations. Right. And I can take a single study and, and paint five different paintings from that study, you know, by taking a tree from one and a mountain from another and a stream from another. And so there are references for me. And um, so I, I don't want to sell those ever. I will, I'll make studio paintings from them, but and that way, you know, it's, it's good source material and, and the color is right. Yeah. Nice. So I'm interested to know when along your journey, when did you recognize your own style? When did it emerge for you to say, this is, this is me? I don't think I have one. <laughs> Honestly. Um, first off, <clears throat> I strongly believe, I, I didn't used to believe this. I used to think that you had to look for your style. Yeah. I now think that your style finds you. Well, that's what I meant. I, I believe that too. I believe that too. That's why I, I kind of 
I tried to phrase it, when did you recognize it? Because I think it's there. I just think it takes a while for us to recognize, oh, that's me. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, but um, I, don't, I don't do all my paintings the same way anymore. I, you know, I'm working on a painting right now that it started out with a traditional underpainting of a, you know, a sepia tone. And then uh, I started glazing it and then I hated it. So I started putting thick paint on top of it and getting rid of the underpainting. But I, I, the, the paintings I love the most, and I like lots of them, is uh, I love Russian Impressionism. And a Russian Impressionist will load the brush up with big, thick brush strokes and make it very heavy and, and brush strokey. And I love doing that. And um, so I have, I, you can't, the guests can't see that. But I have two paintings, three paintings behind me. Mm -hmm. uh, and those three paintings are, uh, one of them is, is very Russian impressionistic, big, thick brush strokes, and uh, completely different. The other, uh, the one uh, right next to it is very traditional, very uh, classically academically rendered, uh, starting with that, you know, one was a two hour painting, one was a five day painting. Wow. And I like doing both of them. So if you if you saw those two side by side in a gallery, right, you wouldn't recognize that those were the same artist. Mm -hmm. Now, because I don't have to make my living as an artist, I don't have to get pigeonholed into a particular form or style or approach. You know, I think pretty much every painting by most of the people I know looks like those people did it and they've developed a style. I paint because I love to paint and I love to experiment and I love to play. And I try lots of different approaches when I paint. And if they're a, if they're a success, I'll maybe send them off to a gallery. And if they're a failure, I'll, you know, they may go into a pile to be recycled as a, for another painting. Um, so it kind of depends, you know, uh, the, I've got one gallery, most of the work in that gallery is all the same because a lot of it was done uh, in a particular time period and very similar in approach. And it's kind of what that gallery owner likes. Mm. But um, that doesn't mean I wouldn't send that gallery owner something that was classically academically rendered if I decided I wanted to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. So you painted all three of those behind you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely thought they were different people. I yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, even the even the one of the minor is uh, it's not classically rendered. It looks a little dark from here, but uh, no, yeah, I mean they're they're all three different. So, and and that's just who I am. That's who I want to be. I don't. I, I I just I paint because I love to paint, and I'm not. E even though I teach marketing, I'm not really marketing my art. I mean, my galleries, I give them a little bit of advice. Um, yeah. I, uh, but I don't advertise my own art because I don't want to compete with my, my other art friends and customers. And I just put it in there to see what happens. I want to learn about marketing and, you know, sometimes they sell, sometimes they don't, but uh, usually they do. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I just had a show at, at Castle Gallery in Fort Wayne and they just sold a ton of paintings. Nice. That was kind of nice. Very nice, yeah. So 
tell me about your greatest challenge and your greatest aha moment along the learning curve, the learning curve, which is still going on, right? We want it to continue. But up to this point, what would be, what would you say was your greatest challenge to learning to painting, learning painting, and what was your greatest aha moment so far? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's really a good question. A tough one. Um, I'm not sure if I can, if I can articulate what comes to mind. I, I think the, the greatest challenge for me has been uh, putting in the mileage, putting in the brush mileage. Uh, I watch friends of mine who transition out of full-time jobs doing other things into becoming full-time artists. And once they get out and they start painting, get out, meaning in studio or outdoors, once they start painting eight hours a day, seven days a week or five days a week or whatever, you will see a dramatic transition in their work after about the one year point and then again at the two year point and and that that's like a 80% each time i mean massive massive uh transition you know i paint nights and weekends and i've been doing nights and weekends for a lot of years but it's not the same as painting every day you know when i have my event in the adirondacks and i paint uh two paintings a day the first two or three days are a little bit rocky by the end of the week i'm rocking it you know they're they're better uh my system is down i know what i'm doing i'm thinking better i'm you know i'm i'm a well-oiled machine well if i were doing that every day like some of our friends are uh i'd be rocking it i think but you know that's that's my big frustration and that's why when uh, the only thing I can do to overcome that is either give up my other passions, which I'm not willing to do because they're, they're also important, mm -hmm. or I can try to super serve myself with, you know, some super serve learning. So like I, I made a determination, I don't know, about three years ago, I said, I, you know, New Year's resolution time, I was not happy with either my landscape painting or with my figure painting. So I, I said, okay, who do I most want to learn from? And I picked two artists. And I picked two backup artists because I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get time with those people. And I said to myself, uh, you know, I have the time, I have a little bit of savings. And so I'm going to spend the money, since I don't have the time, I'm going to spend the money. And so I hired uh, two different artists to give me one for uh, one week to give me private lessons for a, sol a, a solid week. And that was a transformative experience. And that artist was Joe McGurl. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, I, I found it really interesting because, you know, usually somebody would walk into your studio or they'd see your paintings or something and they'd, they'd give you what I like to call false compliments. You know, everybody wants to be nice. And so they'd say, Oh, nice colors or, Ooh, interesting composition. <laughs> yeah. And you know, they're just trying to be nice to you, you know, like your mother would. And, but what started happening is after I studied with Joe, and then after I committed to practicing that for a year, year and a half, and not changing out anything, what ended up happening is I was getting unsolicited comments. Who did that painting? Uh, you know, they'd, it'd be hanging in the house and they'd say, uh, who is that? That's really good, you know, and not, not realizing it was mine. That was a transformative moment for me. And then the same thing happened. Uh, I, I hired Josh LaRock to teach me for a solid week 
and we did, you know, we did a, a basically a single model for a full week, uh, eight, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. Well, mm -hmm. you know, if you go to an atelier and you do that eight, 10 hours a day for four years, yeah. you're going to blow everybody out of the water. Yeah. And that's why time is the most important asset for an artist. And, you know, you cannot overcome that with money. You can't overcome that with, you can buy lots of workshops and you can buy lots of art instruction videos and I'm happy to have you buy them. But uh, the, if you can get good study with someone really good for a couple of years and pay more for them if you can, because if you can get a better artist to teach you, it'll have, it'll have a lasting impact. But if not, if nothing else, if you can just paint every day, you know, four, five, six hours a day, five days a week, right. uh, it'll have a huge impact. And that's the one thing that I would say is, is the biggest frustration. Um, the biggest aha moment, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> no aha? Uh -huh. How about a slow aha? Uh -huh? A very slow developing something that happened over maybe a period of time. Well, well, uh, well I'll give you two of them. I'm not sure either one's very aha, but the one thing that, um, well, there's a few things. One thing is slow down, slowing down and not being anxious to get something done. If, if you have a canvas on the, I'm, I'm rushing to get a piece out because I want to get it to the gallery for Christmas. And because I'm rushing, I'm screwing up. And, and if I were to just slow down and say, look, I, I may or may not get it there in time and it doesn't matter. Uh, I would stop making stupid mistakes. I'd still make mistakes, but not as many. I think slowing down is really a good thing. Yeah. Um, but slowing down can also hurt you because you can lose that impulsivity, you know, that you get when you're plein air painting and you're on a limit of light. Um, so I, I'd say that I, I think for me, the thing that has was really an eye opener it's something I learned very early on, but I forgot and kind of have gone back to now. And that is do a good solid underpainting uh, in a single color and then use that as your roadmap. Because I find that some of the best paintings I do, I, I use some glazing on and I get really nice effects. I don't have to glaze the whole thing, but I, I think that's, that's been uh, a big moment. I think the other thing has been very recent, and that is that uh, as I've started doing these daily broadcasts and, and bringing artists in every day, every day it's a different artist. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, they're doing all kinds of different approaches, things that I would never pick out to attend or view on my own. Uh, but somebody introduced us and I needed to fill a spot or something, you know, I am, but when I put an hour a day into watching artists paint, mm -hmm. it, it is having a phenomenal impact on my brain. And I would say that's true for every single person who's been tuning in every single day. I have people like Elaine Miller uh, or uh, Nancy Atherton West, who, who's founded the Dreamline Artist, which is a club kind of based yeah. around this daily program. And they've been there every single day. They will tell you, because I've had the discussions, at least with Elaine, they will tell you that things are creeping into their brain when they're painting 
that just all of a sudden show up because they've been watching something every day. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you spend even an hour a day watching something like that daily show that I do or uh, reading books on, on art or watching art instruction videos or something, it, it has an impact whether or not you intend it to. You know, when people attend the plein air convention, the one thing I hear more than anything else is I was painting and all of a sudden I had an aha moment and it came to me. I remember seeing, you know, uh, Kevin McPherson do that on stage. I had a problem. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to solve the problem. And then I remembered seeing Kevin solve that problem on stage. Those are the things that's where the aha moments come from. And the, the best learning, the best growth as an artist comes from the biggest amount of pain. I talk about that all the time in Sunday coffee is that you've got to have, you've got to be willing to embrace the pain. See what, what happens in our society and it's probably an old thing, but you know, we're an instant gratification society. You know, if something's not easy, we quit. Mm -hmm. And I remember some people that I brought into the art class 30 years ago and I really wanted them to to learn because they were so passionate and I knew they'd be good. And they went and they got frustrated after two or three classes and quit. Well, they could be brilliant artists today, but they gave it up. And we have to understand, and we we as art instructors need to convey, we need to have, we actually need to sit down with our students when they first come on board. We need to say, listen, here's what your path is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm going to teach you a few basic things. And you're going to feel like you're, you're, you know, you're bumble fingers. Uh, you're going to have frustration. And then uh, you're going to be ready to quit. And then you're going to persist. And then all of a sudden you'll master it. And then you'll do that for a while. Then you're going to get bored. And then you're going to want to go to the next level. And then when you get to the next level, same thing. And every time you get to that, that point of inflection where, you know, it's hard, it's frustrating, you're going to want to quit or I'm not making any progress. If somebody would just sit down and say, this is what you're going to go through and embrace, embrace those difficult times. We wouldn't have artists quitting because they would understand that this is part of the process. Right. For sure. There's those plateaus all over the place, but back to watching the videos. I, um, I have to agree with that. I'm a Suzuki violin teacher. So the students who listen to the music, go very fast through the repertoire the students who never listen if you know i mean of course there's always some anomalies in there from yeah in there. of course but um that's just basically how it goes and i have been watching them because i can't catch them midday I'm, I'm working but um i can watch them before i go to bed so i watch and i watch and just as and i love that because then i'm sleeping and i wake up in the middle of the night and there it is i'm still thinking about it and that goes such a long way to watch someone else, you know, perform the techniques that you're trying to learn. And you're very right about that. It just, it, what it does is it supplants these things into your subconscious mind. Yeah. And, you know, today I was watching, uh, we had an artist on from Scotland. Yes. And he did a technique. I mean, I, you know, I know like you, I mean, I know lots of artists. I, I've seen literally hundreds of artist demos. I've, I've done videos with hundreds of artists and every time I turn around, somebody surprises me and has a completely new yeah. and different thing. And this guy today is like, 
It was wild. Whoa. I saw yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, where did that come from? I want to do that. And I got all excited and I want to, you know, I, I just want to try it. And, and that's, that's why I don't want to, you know, I'm trying not to do the same thing every day. I don't want every painting to be the same painting. I don't want every painting to be the same style. You know, I'm trying to get some crazies on there that do some crazy things that none of us would ever consider. And I think that's important that we try those things because Mm-hmm. I mean, even if they don't resonate with us, there are there's truth in everything. I mean, this guy today was a watercolor painter. I'm not a watercolor painter, or at least not a very good one. But I could exactly translate what he did and say, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that in oil color, uh, or I'm gonna try that with an underpainting technique, or you know, try to create these senses of texture and 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 the randomness of things that my brush could never come up with based on this thing that he did. Now I know everybody's curious. They're going to have to look for it. <laughs> yes, for sure. Day 229. <laughs> That's oh, right. Gosh. And, and by the way, all of those, uh, all of those are archived on YouTube mm-hmm. under streamline art video. So they can go back to day one. They can go back. I mean, I did in the beginning cause I just didn't know what to do. I just wanted to be there for people. So yeah. in the beginning I did, I'll bet 60 days or more of art marketing instruction. I mean, I probably wrote two or three more books just coming up with stuff. <laughs> and uh, I need to go back and transcribe it and do some books. Great. Sounds wonderful. Okay, two more questions about your personal journey as an artist. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what does success mean for you as an artist? Success means satisfying my own heart, not trying to satisfy anybody else. Because uh, the reality is that if I satisfy my own heart, somebody else will resonate with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I'm working with the idea of trying to sell a painting, and by the way, it goes through, I think it goes through our heads. It goes through mine. It's like, I'll do something in a painting and I'll go, oh man, that's so cool. Everybody's going to love that. That's going to (laughs) sell. You know, and, and I hate that. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a marketing guy. I mean, the, the basis, the foundation of marketing is to find out what people want and to give it to them. But I don't necessarily, I used to believe that in art, but I don't think I believe it anymore. Yeah. I, I think that if, you know, if my gallery owners call me and say, listen, Eric, uh, you know, those little red barns sold really well. Can you paint me 30 or 40 more of those? I'm going to say, probably not. I mean, if I'm, if I'm having fun doing a barn series and I've done, I want to keep going on that and it's, it's enlightening to me and I'm learning and I'm growing and it's enjoyable, I might do it. But if it's just for the purpose of giving the gallery something to sell, I'm not going to do it because then it's not me, right? I had a commission. Somebody asked me to, to do them a favor and paint her parents. Both had deceased. And I had to do it from two little snapshots that were differently lit and everything was really difficult. And I, you know, I was into it for about a week because I like this person and I wanted to do him a favor, but I ended up because I'm such a perfectionist. I spent six months on that painting and I couldn't do anything else. And I hated everything about it by the the time I was done because, and I almost started resenting her for asking me to do it as a favor. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, I did it because I wanted to do it and I could have stopped, but I just, you know, I, I was challenged. I had to see it through, but I don't really want to spend uh, my time. You know, I was talking to another artist today who's, who, who turned 78 this week. And he said, I asked him what he was doing. He said, well, I'm trying to make really good use of my time because I don't know how much of it I have left. I, I think, you know, once you get over 50 years old, you start realizing that every hour is precious. And if you're spending your time painting for someone else or for someone else's approval or someone else to sell it, I, I, you know, I, I think that's the wrong direction. Now, I will say this, that every artist has to make a living. And if, if uh, you know, I'm the kind of guy, I've always said to myself that if, uh, if I had to clean toilets, and I'm not trying to be derogatory towards people who do, because I have, I actually was a janitor in an office building. Mm -hmm. And so I cleaned toilets, and I picked up stuff that I didn't want to deal with. Um, and I did it for as little time as I could, and then I moved on to the next thing. But if, if my choice was painting little red barns for the gallery uh, that I don't want to paint versus going back and cleaning toilets, I'll paint little red barns because at least I'm painting. So we all have to make, we have to make compromises sometimes to do what we need to do. And, and I'm okay with that. But, but the majority of your time in your life should be spent doing the things that are going to enrich you, make you feel the best about yourself and help you learn about yourself and help you grow. Yeah, I like that. So where can people find your work? Because it is hard to find online. I know you mentioned the uh, gallery in Indiana. Well, I, I, quite frankly, I, I am, um, you know, I'm kind of like the, the plumber. Who had, <laughs> yeah. right? I plumb everybody else's buildings, but I don't plumb my own. My, I have a leaky sink. Uh, listen, I teach marketing. I have, uh, I have artmarketing.com blog. I have videos. I have training. I'm working on a course right now. I, and I have, and I say this humbly, I don't mean to sound arrogant, uh, those kinds of things have literally helped hundreds of artists, some who have become very wealthy and very successful. And those aren't necessarily meaning the same thing because success is different to everybody uh, from doing those, but I don't do it for myself. Um, I, I called my art, my, my gallery at castle gallery in Fort Wayne recently. And I asked her to pull down some paintings that were on the website that I didn't want publicized anymore. Mm -hmm. So right now, the only place you can find any of my art is at Castle Gallery, or you might Google my name and you, something might pop up from somewhere. But I'm going into a series gallery in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire very soon, and I'm going into uh, uh, Folly Cove Fine Art, which is, is a really prominent, it's a new gallery, but they've got really prominent artists in there, uh, including some of the great historic artists like Hibbard and Wow. And uh, 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 um, I was trying to think of uh, who else, Carlson, uh, not Carlson, but uh, anyway, they, I mean, I was really blown away when they invited me in and they had come to fall color week, seen my plein air work. And uh, they came there for another artist to do a deal with another artist. And while they were there, they said, we saw your work and we'd like you to come into the gallery. Well, yeah. I was, so I was blown away by that. Yeah. So I haven't really got anything yet prepared for them. So I'm working on a couple of pieces, but those places are where you're going to find it. Ultimately, uh, I cannot, I don't, you know, I've got a busy schedule. So I get to paint nights and weekends when my family doesn't have demands on me. 
Sure. And, uh, and I have a lot of paintings. I have dozens of paintings around here that I haven't finished that I can finish yeah. that I'll be putting into some of these galleries. And so, uh, but you know, I, I'm, I've only been able to give Castle Gallery in Indiana maybe two or three paintings a year because I just don't have the time. Um, and so I try to give them some, and I'll try to give these some, but I just don't know how many I'll be able to do. So it, that's called scarcity, folks. In marketing, that means if, if people can't have it, they want it more. That's right. <laughs> and I can tell you that the majority of my listeners, artists of New England, can get to Series Gallery. When you come there in Portsmouth, they will be there. Yeah, well, that's nice. And, and Elaine Miller is just the sweetest lady on yes, earth. And, there is. Yeah. So hopefully you'll come out and maybe do a big, a big uh, featured artist, you know, thing, and that would be wonderful. Well, yeah. I, so I know that Foley Cove has a plan to do a big artist event. They're going to have try to have all their artists come in in, in August, and um, it's the second week of August, and I live in the Adirondacks that time of year, so I might be able to make the drive over for that. I'm not guaranteeing it. Uh, but two weeks later, I'm, I'm taking 50 people to Russia to paint. And so uh, I, you know, again, time is precious. Yeah. And especially, you know, the kids are home from college and, you know, want to spend time with them. And so I'll try you know, if I possibly can. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of important things to do. And I, you know, try to do what I can. Yeah. You are a busy guy. So well, tell me your funniest or strangest plein air story. <laughs> My funniest or strangest. Um, well, uh, I'll tell you two real quickly. Um, one is I had... I do an annual painter's retreat called Fall Color Week, and we did it up in Banff, Lake Louise. And I was standing in front of the Great Banff Hotel painting the, a picture of the glacier, and there were thousands of Asian tourists. I don't know if they were Japanese or they were Chinese or what, but um, so I'm standing there painting this painting. It's almost done. And this guy uh, comes up, bumps literally bump grabs my brushes and bumps me out of the way and poses with the paintbrush at the picture while his friend took the picture and i i was like mortified and I, the only thing i could figure out is that he just didn't know how to ask because he didn't speak language and it would have taken too long so he figured okay this is how i do it so i mean he, he literally body checked me just pushed me out of the way and my buddy was watching richard lindenberg was there with me and he's like ready to come over and tackle the guy and i said no just just chill he just needs a picture wow. <laughs> uh, so that that was one and then um I, i've had a couple of occasions I, they're memorable i don't know if they're funny but you know i was painting in in uh uh, in France, uh, in a little coastal village, I can't remember the name of it, and uh, a TV crew came by from a Chinese television thing, and uh, they interviewed me. The guy spoke English, and you know they they wanted to know all about plein air painting, and they interviewed me, and they did a whole segment. I guess I never saw it, so that was fun. I've ha I've had that happen a lot. You know, I was in Bruges painting, and. And the local newspaper uh, website came by and interviewed me. It's like, I'm, I'm sure there's painters there all the time, but, and, and they didn't know 
that I was connected to the magazines or anything. I mean, it just happened to be some random painter. So that happens a lot. I, I think the thing that is the most memorable for me, though, um, I, I started doing this years ago. I was in Santa Fe in the square in Santa Fe painting. And uh, this family walked up and you could kind of tell they were going to ask me something. They had a little kid with them. And, and uh, that mom said, um, could our son watch you paint? I said, sure. Yes, of course. As a matter of fact, with your permission, I'm going to ask him to help me work on my painting. And so they kind of nodded. And the kid was probably seven or eight years old. Uh, high enough to reach the easel, right? And and um, so I said, here, I went, here's how to hold the paintbrush. And I said, and I asked the parents, it's okay. So I held his hand and I said, okay, here's how we mix the paint. You know, red plus, plus blue equals purple. Now let's put a little white in it. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to reach back, see that little area back there. I want you to make a brush stroke from there to there. And I, re I took his hand and I went up there and I did a brush stroke. And then I said, okay, now the next one you do by yourself. And he lit up like a Christmas tree. And um, so he did the next brush stroke. And then, and then I said, okay, how long do you want to do this? You want to keep going? He says, yeah. So, you know, I just let him keep working on my painting. I didn't care if he screwed it up. I was screwing it up anyway. And the parents were all thrilled. And, and then I, you know, I said to the parents, if he's excited and interested in this, if this is something he keeps talking about, here's what you need to do. And the one thing that I try to do, as a matter of fact, I created a website for artists called uh, paintoutside.com, yes. or maybe it was plenairforce.com. It's one of those two. And it, the, the one was for consumers. I could say, if you want to learn about plein air painting, you can go to the uh, paintoutside.com. And I'm in plein air force. We put out stickers that people could put on their easels that says, this is called plein air painting. You want to learn more about it do this. And, you know, here's how to reach my website and stuff. I think it's a wonderful opportunity. The one thing that happens all the time, people walk up to me and, and I know every painter in the world gets this. It's, um, I wish I could do it. I can't draw a stick figure. Uh, I don't have any talent. And, and my stock answer to that is most of the successful artists in the world alive today did not their talent is their persistence. It's something that's a process that you can learn. There are some people who are naturally talented, but most of us are not. So this is a process. If you can follow a recipe, if you can learn how to type, you can learn how to paint. And if you if, don't tell yourself you can't do it, if you go here and, I, and then I tell them about my paintbynote.com site, you go there and just try those exercises for free. Yeah. It will help you. And I hear from people all the time that I met in the streets that, you know, they started painting. And now the thing that's really cool, and then I'll wrap up. The thing that's really cool is you have all these people who, uh, who are watching every day at noon from 50, 60 countries around the world. And we reached hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions. And people are sending me notes that I haven't picked up a paintbrush in 40 years, but, you know, because of COVID, I had the time you inspired us and I've started painting again. Other people have said, I never even considered painting as an option. I didn't know how it was done. I've watched it enough that I think I can do it. So I went out and bought some lessons, you know, bought some paints. I bought some lessons. I bought a video or something. And, and then of course there's the people who are saying, you know, it's pushing me to the next level. So to me, that's what my life is about is to see these people, uh, 
going in and trying it because see art opened up my heart. I was a hard nosed, hard driving entrepreneur. And all I cared about was making money. And I wasn't really getting anywhere making money because I really never made a lot. And then when I found art, it gave me a purpose. And then now that I realized that my purpose in life is to help others discover it, help people get better at it and to create Disneyland for those of us who do it, you know, find things that are fun for them to do, artist retreats, conventions, things like that. It, it's really given me a purpose. And, uh, and now I don't care about making money. And it's interesting because when you don't care about it and you're helping people, it starts happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've done such an amazing job creating community for artists for, I, I mean, you cover the gamut from beginners to the highest level professionals. And that's, that's very impressive. Um, for those of us who have never been to one of the plein air or, and figurative conventions, Tell us what they used to be like, and then tell us how you did this amazing pivot to create the online. <laughs> what, they, what they used and to And what be they're like. going to be like when we can go. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a pretty bad day when COVID hit. You uh, know, 60% of our income comes from our live events, and we had to cancel all of them. Wow. And uh, we were pretty scared, and we pivoted. But the plein air convention, the goal of when, when I, I had this dream one night about a giant dinner party. And the dinner party was all the great artists in the world. And wow. we, were all sit, we were all sitting around having dinner together. And we were talking about art. And we were all happy because we were talking about, you know, art. And, you know, Sargent was there and Zorn and Soroya oh. and, and Morso and, you know, all these artists. And I, I woke up and I thought, oh, that was so cool. That would be so cool if that came true. And and then I started thinking about Monet and, and friends who would sit around in the cafes in France and they would, you know, they were part of their own little community and they would hang out together. And I thought, you know, I don't really have that in my life. And so uh, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we created like a, a convention where we would all get together and hang out together and we could get the vendors there to bring in stuff and we could bring in demos and then we could all paint together. And we could create like the world's largest paint out. And so we did that. We did it uh, nine years in a row. And uh, I think it was nine, eight or eight or nine years in a row. And then the next one that got canceled was either the ninth or the 10th. I'm not sure which. And uh, so it's four days, five days. Um, we paint indoors. We have five stages. Uh, we have a main stage, which is usually water uh, oil. And then we have a watercolor stage and acrylic stage. Uh, usually a couple of stages for, you know, pastel and, and so on. Okay. And we bring in the top masters of instructors, about 80 of them. And then we have the same instructors work with people in the field. So when we all go out painting, we, uh, these people have these cards that can hold up and these instructors have red hats or green hats or whatever to bring attention and uh, so it's kind of like, hey, stop me and work with me. And people, you know, the best thing somebody told me one time, you know, I was painting, I was struggling, I knew at this, and all of a sudden, you know, Matt Smith walked up to me and said, how can I help you? And, you know, he gave them three or four tips that changed their life, right? Um, big shapes, big shapes. And, and so, I mean, I've heard so many experiences like this. We have a beginner's day 
uh, where people can learn uh, beginning painting and plein air. They teach all the things you need to know about plein air painting. And then they stick with you. That group sticks with you. The instructors stay with you the whole week. Oh. And so that way, you know, you're, you're not alone. We also do this thing where we, we pair people up. So they come to the convention alone and we say, okay, you're in this dinner group. Uh, and, and so we put five or six people together and they end up with another dinner group, you know, and they end up making a lot of friends. Some of them have made lifelong friends. One couple met, one was in one group, one was in the other group. They were hanging out together. They started talking. They ended up started dating. They ended up getting married. (laughs) So, so yes, great things can happen. So the figurative art convention is essentially the same thing. It's just, it's all about figurative painting and portraits. And now we've added to that still life and uh, landscape. And so it's more like a full art convention. We weren't able to have it this year. And I suspect we're not going to be able to have it in 21 based on kind of what what's going on right now. It's hard to know, but we replaced them all by virtual conventions. And we ended up having uh, 27 countries attend the uh, realism live convention lately had the world's top artists there uh, teaching online, uh, you know, for five days. And we did the same with the plein air thing. And we have watercolor live coming up in January, the world's top watercolor artists. Wonderful. So I don't, I, I do watercolor, but I don't watercolor, if you know what I mean. I want, I, I know. And, and, <laughs> and for people like me, I'm, I'm kind of the same way, but I'm starting now to realize first off after watching, uh, this guy today, it's like, I might try it if I could do it like that. But, Secondly, it's like, you know, I, when I throw a bag in the car, I get on an airplane, I'm not always taking my paints with me. I always want to have them with me, but you know, sometimes oil paints and all the heavy easels and all that stuff, I just don't want to do it. But watercolor, I can always take with me. So I, I now always carry watercolor in, in, in a hotel room at night. Now, of course I'm not traveling right now, but I, I traveled 40 weeks last year. And, uh, and so I'm in a lot of hotel rooms. I don't want to sit in the bar and and drink. And so I'll sit in the hotel and I'll set up a a still life either in the lobby of the hotel or I'll set it up in my room and, and I'll paint a still life or I'll paint out the window or if, if it's daylight, I'll go outdoors and sit down on a bench and do a sketch. So watercolor is becoming more important to me. And of course, gouache right now is a gouache is a form of watercolor is a big movement among plein air painters. A big number of people who are using gouache for that reason is, you know, it's soap and water and it's easy to deal with, but you can get uh, a lot of the similar effects of oil. Yeah, when I saw Scott Christensen do it. Um, yeah. Know, yeah, plein air. yeah, and you see Scott Christensen doing anything. It's like, okay, this is what everybody's <laughs> going to do now. <laughs> well, I did, I did order some. I'll be heading south for a month or so, and, I, and that's, you know, I want to take something that's easy, so. To, oh, that'll be uh, fun. Yeah. Where are you going? Uh, down South Carolina. Nice. Stay warm for a, a month or so since I can nice. teach online, which I don't like. Uh, th- speaking of that, you know, what's your greatest challenge with doing this? Like, I mean, this has changed our lives right now, hopefully temporary, but I find it exhausting. Do you find it tiring to, to do all this online stuff? No, no, <laughs> because I, no, because I, um, I mean, I, I, I will say this. I'm working longer hours and harder days than I've worked ever wow. in my career. 
because now, you know, now I got all this preparation. I got to do this online thing every day at noon. My editors are working harder because they're doing all the videos, getting those ready for the 3 PMs. And uh, so, and, and on the marketing folks and all the social people and everything else, they're all working harder. Um, and we're working harder to make a quarter as much money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a survival mode, right? You got to do what you got to do. And so I made up my mind that I was going to do it and I was not going to stop. And I would just, you know, and, and it's about your attitude. You know, mm-hmm. I looked at it and said, Hey, if I can stay in business yeah. and I can survive this, I'm willing to do just about anything to do that beyond compromising my ethics. Right. And so I, I just, I set my attitude of I'll do what it takes. And, um, uh, it's, I, I love to work and, and I love to work at what I do. I mean, if I were doing something I hated, it wouldn't be much fun, but. Well, uh, I have to say those plenty of lives. I mean, you are like the energizer bunny. <laughs> well. You'd be doing uh, the, the, what was it? The painting. And uh, I was like dead to the world by that. <laughs> I was worn out. But you well, I, you know, I, somebody asked me today, uh, uh, I got a note from uh, Cornelia Hearns, uh, who was one of our instructors, and she said, "You must. We were exhausted. You, we, you had so much energy. You must have slept for five days." I said, "No, I slept in the next day. I slept in an hour late, and I got up and I was ready to go." And 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 uh, you know, my wife will tell you that if I go to a convention, a plein air convention, I'll come home and I'll sleep for two or three hours late, and then that's it. You know, I, I that's just. I don't know what it is. It's, I think it's my diet. You know, I'm very careful about what I eat. Um, I'm mostly a vegan and uh, I do eat a little fish and I, I, and it gives me tremendous amounts of energy and it doesn't drag me down. And so I, you know, at 66 years old, I'm operating on eight cylinders so far, God willing. Nice. And it seems like you reach, are you reaching more people with all of this virtual stuff? Oh yeah. 10 X, maybe 20 X. Absolutely. Um, the, the thing that has been really a wonderful lesson in this, and I think it's a, a lesson we can all take home. And that is that, you know, we all did this to, to pivot, you know, to survive. Um, I've had probably 50 or 60% of the people who attended the plein air live say I could never go to a plein air convention. I didn't have the time. I had a, a husband or a wife or a grandparent or a parent or somebody, a kid, somebody they had to care for. Uh, I have a job, I have restrictions in my travel. I didn't have the money, you know, whatever those things were. And, uh, you know, I've heard about it for years, always wanted to go, never could. This gave me a chance to experience something similar for, um, you know, for a fraction of the price. And they all have said like, keep it going. This is great. You know, we, we, Many of us won't be able to go to that. And then, of course, the other half of them said, uh, we didn't know about the plein air convention. We just discovered this, you know, through, through a Facebook ad or something, and we're going. Okay. So I think it's going to amplify attendance to all of these events, um, and it's also going to keep the virtual events going. And I think, you yeah. know, we're all learning that virtual is not a bad thing. The thing that I am a little bit disturbed about and the thing that is – uh, something I think we all have to be really careful with. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was an artist who's teaching online, and she said this to me. She said, you know, this online thing is 
Um, it's exhausting. I'm, you know, I had to figure out the technology, which is okay. I'm working on this. I signed up, you know, three different groups of people of 20 people each to do a six week workshop. She said, once I'm done with that, I'm never doing it again. She said, I can't do it. It's just, it's all consuming because what people don't realize is you're dealing with, uh, you're thinking about it all the time. Now, instead of painting, you're teaching and, and I'm, nothing wrong with teaching. We all need to teach, but you're doing nothing but teaching. You're too exhausted to paint. You're dealing with all hours, night and day, people phoning you and questions and emails. And this is why our video business has grown so much is because artists, a lot of artists say, well, I'll just do my own video. And then after they do it, they go, oh, you know, I got paid about a dollar an hour for all my efforts because you know, I was going to the FedEx all the time when people were buying DVDs. We still sell a lot of DVDs. Um, I was dealing with customer service issues. You know, people would call me in the middle of the night because they had bought something and they lived in some other country. Right. And, you know, and it's like it exhausted me. And uh, so we've had actually artists who've come to us and said, you know, I was going to do another one. I don't want to do it myself. Uh, I would rather do it with you guys. Of course, we reach more people and, and, uh, and can give them a bigger platform. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a win-win in that way. But I think that the one thing we all have to be careful about is uh, we all have to survive and we have to do whatever we can to survive, but we have to be careful not to burn ourselves out. You know, we all have to treat ourselves well. Everybody's emotionally exhausted from COVID and from the elections and from all the, all the negativity surrounding all of that. And, I think, as I say on the broadcast, you know, you got to keep your head in the game. You got to take all that negativity out of your life and you got to surround yourself with things that you love to do and people you love and don't fall into the traps because I, I know my own wife, she said to me this morning, she said, I can't take it anymore. I, it's just, I cannot, I cannot watch the news one more day ever. I just, <laughs> right. I'm done. And uh, she said, you know, if something big happens, tell me, but don't tell me anything else. Cause I'm like, so exhausted. I'm, I'm staying off of Facebook. I'm staying off of Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I see people leaving Facebook and Twitter like crazy because it, it's just become, it's so negative. And I, I have unfriended hundreds of people because of political stuff. And, and by the way, political stuff I agree with and political stuff I don't agree with because I don't want to spend my life you know, to me, Facebook is a pleasure to see friends and to see, you know, learn about their art or their lives or their kids or the meals that they're eating or their cats or whatever, the funny videos. I don't tune in to social media because I want to hear somebody's opinion on politics. I don't want to hear theirs. They don't want to hear mine. Right. Right. Uh, no one's going to change anyone's mind anyway. Mm -hmm. And all the vitriol, I mean, I, I, I just, my wife has lost friends. Um, uh, I've, I've just unfriended people. I friended someone that unfriended someone who's been a friend for, for 40 years, someone I love dearly, but I couldn't stand the politics anymore. Mm -hmm. And if, if that person, uh, they'll, they're still my friend, but I'm not going to read their dribble on Facebook. Yeah. And so I want my Facebook to be clean in terms of the kinds of things that are good for my head. And I am highly recommending that to everybody you know, first off, you can't change anybody's mind. I had, uh, it's not good for business. I had a call from uh, 
several people who were complaining about an artist who was giving their opinions on social media. And they called me and they said, I won't buy a video from this artist because I don't like their politics. And so I called the artist and I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You do whatever you want to do, but I just want you to be aware that this is costing both of us money. Mm-hmm. And the artist said, I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm angry and I'm going to tell my story. I said, that's fine. But you know, it's costing you 50%, you know, it's costing you the people who don't want, want that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not good for business. And, and, you know, we're creators, our goal, our, our purpose is to, I think for the most part is to push beauty. Mm-hmm. is to help people see things through our eyes. Now, some of us, some of us push different forms of art. You know, there are artists who push their angst or their fear or their, their drama. That's okay too. I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical of that, but for those of us who need to stay in the beauty business, we need to make sure that we keep our heads in the beauty business. Yeah, I, I agree. And as you stated, it doesn't change anyone's mind. So don't lose friends over it. Um, I, I got just a few more questions, if you're okay. And I, I definitely want to list all of the websites. I'm fine. I just don't want to bore your, uh, your Oh, no, I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> um, so on your marketing, you do such a fantastic job. You have your book, How to Make More Money Selling Art. Um, what, do you, what would you say is, is the most difficult challenge for artists to market themselves, both both maybe internally and externally, what would be the, the worst thing they're up against? Uh, their own head. <laughs> um, Somehow I thought that was in the internal one. <laughs> nobody wants to hear. Well, I, I think there's two things, um, probably more than two things. The first thing is that we have, uh, as artists, we became artists, those of us who do it full time, most of us became artists because we we did not like the idea of selling out or being something else, right? We didn't see ourselves as a, a bookkeeper or as a salesperson or as a fireman or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so to us, the idea of doing business is obtuse. It's something that we resist because it represents what we don't want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a difficult pill to swallow. And, and yet we look at it and we say, well, I need to sell my art, but we don't look at it and say, I need to sell my art. As a result, I am a business person. And that, that's a hard pill to swallow. The idea of being a business person and being an artist are two different opposing things, and yet they're one and the same. And instead of looking at it as a being a business person, I think what you've got to do is you've got to say, listen, if I'm going to be an artist and I want to be able to continue to be an artist and support myself and thrive, I'm going to have to develop some muscles in some areas that will help me succeed. You know, I, when I first got into business, I had to develop muscles in accounting. I hate accounting, but I have to understand it. I had to develop muscles in sales. I had to develop muscles in, uh, you know, all kinds of technical related stuff. And so those are not the reason I'm in business. You know, I I started a a dot-com back in the 90s, in in early 2000s. And and I, you know, I was there because I was a craftsperson. I wanted to do, uh, I, I kind of invented a, a form of internet radio that is very standard today. And, hmm. and it 
but I was there to have fun. But you know, the people who gave me all the money to do it said, look, you've got to go out and raise money. Well, I didn't see myself as a carnival barker out there raising money. I didn't want to do that. And they said, look, you have to do it. They want to hear from you. You're the CEO. And so I had to develop muscles in that. And I was resistant to it in the beginning. And when I was resistant, I failed. And when I embraced it, I succeeded. So I think you have to be willing to embrace right. the, the muscles that you need to develop. And so that starts with your own head. And so you got to tell yourself, you don't have to tell yourself you're a business person, even though you are, you have to tell yourself, I'm an artist who has to develop some business muscles. I have to develop muscles in marketing. So, uh, you know, everything about our success or failure starts inside our head. It starts with the programming that we have told ourselves or that we have absorbed or heard from our parents or, you know, all the things about, you know, artists who sell out are bad and, you know, but do we really want to be, uh, do we really want to be um, Van Gogh? I mean, Van Gogh was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Uh, he was severely depressed and he had a miserable life. He did beautiful paintings but do we really want to be that? I mean, we romanticize the starving artist concept. I would guarantee you that if he were sane, he would probably say, hey, I'd much rather have a, you know, a family and some kids and, and, and you know, a nice house and be, you know, be able to make a living doing this. I mean, he only saw, what, one or two paintings sold in his lifetime. And the only reason he became successful is because his wife's, his, hus his brother's wife, when she was elderly, started making a market for it. But uh, so I think we have to just learn how to embrace and how to, how to mess with our heads. So I talk a lot about that in the book because getting your head straight is pretty critical. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was a part B to that question. I don't remember what it was. Well, the external, what, what challenges are they facing, you know, just externally? That, uh... well, I think the biggest challenge is that we we all think that a little is too much. And what I mean by that is that we, we tend to think that, uh, <clears throat> okay, I'll do, I'll do one, one of something. And if I do two of something, it's a little bit too obnoxious. And I'll do one post uh, a, a day instead of two posts a day or one post a week or one ad and then, you know, and if I do two, then I'm being obnoxious. I'm being out there too much. Most people, first off, don't pay that close attention. Secondly, most people who you're trying to reach don't see you. You know, for instance, in Facebook, we all, we all have this belief that, you know, we do a post on Facebook because we have 5,000 friends that 5,000 people are going to see it. The reality is that only 2%, Facebook feeds it to only 2%. So, you know, it's not very many people who are going to see a post and not the same people see it all the time, though they tend to keep it in small groups if you're not getting a lot of activity. So the same people see those those things all the time, but you're not doing it enough. I think you've got to be willing to, to put yourself out there more. Repetition is the key to selling anything. It's repetition plus time uh, plus creativity, meaning uh, creative messaging. You know, if you do the same, if you do the same thing every, every day, all the time, nobody's going to pay attention. Just like if you do the same painting every day, all the time, nobody's going to pay attention. You do something that stands out or you do a marketing message that stands out. 
plus you get it out there frequently, you do it a lot. That's, that's really the essentials. Uh, I've watched artists who have gone from being timid and shy to following that program. We have a, a thing I created called Art Marketing in a Box, which is kind of designed to help people become local, local superstar artist heroes and make money. I had one lady who tried it and she doubled her sales in the first year with it. And all it is, I mean, I can tell you how to do it without you spending the six or 1200 bucks on it, whatever it costs. And that is you just um, put your message out there and keep repeating it over and over again and reach people in different ways and stay in front of them all the time. And you start reminding people all of a sudden they're going to remember you. And one day you're going to hear from them and they're going to buy something. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, as artists, we forget, we probably don't know, you know, we are all obsessed with getting new customers, new buyers, and yet <clears throat> the gold does not lie in new buyers. The gold lays, lies in old buyers because uh, it's hard to find somebody who connects with your work. And so now you're looking for new people to connect with your work. But if you've got 10 paintings, you've sold to 10 people that there's 10 customers there that already connect with your work. Now your goal is to figure out how to get them to buy a, a second or a third or a fourth or a 20th. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your book does a great job talking about all that. Um, so definitely I would recommend for people to get that at least, if not the, uh, the whole program. So well, the book is a good starting point. It's a 25 buck investment. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, it's, you can't, can't, you can go to McDonald's and spend 25 bucks. <laughs> oh gosh. So where are your favorite places to paint in New England? When you come back, where will you paint? Well, um, I am enamored with New England in general. I, uh, of course I live in the Adirondacks in the summer, which is not New England technically. Um, I love, I, I really fell in love with New Hampshire. Um, I, I love Maine. Uh, I took, I had fall color week in, in uh, Bar Harbor area for ah, two or three years. Nice. I love uh, Acadia. I love, you know, Gloucester and Rockport. And I mean, all those, uh, you just got so much there. I mean, I, I could spend a lifetime there. And part of my problem is there's a lot of places I could spend a lifetime uh, including the Adirondacks, um, which I've been, you know, I've been there painting for many, many years. Uh, I've been there, you know, been there for 30 years. Doesn't seem possible. And, and, and I also love, you know, I have to get out to, I try to get to Europe once a year and paint because I just think it's, it's nice to have a change of scenery. And, um, you know, I just, I, I'm taking a group to Russia uh, to paint. I've painted in Russia a couple times. I like that. I, uh, I, you know, I want to take a group to Costa Rica. I want to take it. I want to take people everywhere. And, mm -hmm. and now that my kids are out of college, woohoo. I mean, I could be traveling all the time. No, wait, I thought they just went out of high school. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say out of college? Now yeah. that they're out of the house. You got a ways to go. <laughs> they're in college. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I still have to make an income. I, I don't ever intend to retire. <laughs> Uh, God willing, I'm, I'm healthy and able to keep going. Uh, but they're out of the house. Right. I mean, they technically they're not cause they keep coming home, but, uh, they do that. We like that, but yeah. you know, if we want to leave, we can go and, and not have to worry. So, you know, we we bought a little camper and we're going to go out and do some camping and I'll, I'll do some painting. I'm trying to talk my wife into painting, but she doesn't seem to have interest. Yeah. So, but I'll, you know, 
she can drink beer and I can paint. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about the, all the places people can find these things. Facebook is daily at 12 Eastern, Streamline Art Videos. Is that correct? Streamline Art Video. Okay. Yeah, if you go to YouTube or Facebook and search Streamline Art Video, that's where you'll find the daily. And if you hit subscribe or follow, it'll pop up in your feed. Yes. Um, so that's the daily for that. It also will give you the 3 p.m. daily, which is uh, usually an hour sample of the one of over five, 600 videos that we've produced. Right. Which um, uh, are excellent. And though, I mean, the excerpt alone is extremely tantalizing. And then, of course, you want the video, which uh, you give some wonderful discounts on. And yeah, we, you know, we have never discounted, but we thought for COVID we needed yeah. to discount uh, for three reasons. One is because we needed to survive. Yeah. Two is our listeners needed a break. And three is the artists need to survive. And so we started doing discounts. Uh, we've never really, we, we only did discounts once a year. And so we're doing a discount a day on a video. So that day that we run that video, you can get a discount on that. Mm -hmm. that particular video and they're they're very i mean they're hours hours long oh some of them i mean we have some that that are 20 or 30 hours long i yeah. mean they're entire college courses in painting yeah yeah they're fantastic and you donate 10 percent to the homeless which is also a phenomenal thing well we don't really talk about that too much but it's i mean we i don't think we even have that I don't know where you got that, but I don't talk about it very much. We try to, I'm, I'm one of those people who thinks that my charity work should be kind of quiet and yeah. I, I don't want to be thumping my chest over things like that. But. I did have to dig for that, <laughs> but I think it's wonderful. And then, yeah, so, and then, so you've got streamlineartvideo.com, you've got ericroads.com and artmarketing.com. What I found was streamlineartvideo.com if they go there and they go to what we do section they'll find kind of a whole range of all yeah we have we have one that's um uh, the company is called streamline publishing okay and we're in art but we're also in some other things uh that i started with before art yeah um if you go to streamlinepublishing.com slash everything that kind of gives you a link to uh the newsletters the magazines, the virtual conferences, the live conferences, the products we create, the videos we create. We have a Streamline Art Video, Lilladol Art Video, which was Lilladol founded the art video business 35 years ago. And uh, Johnny Lilladol passed away. And Ralph, her husband, called me one day and he said, listen, I've been kind of doing my homework. And we wanted somebody who had kind of the same ethics and same you know, beliefs that we had and would you be willing to take over the company? So we took over the company probably about seven or eight years ago now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, st we had started producing with Streamline, then we took over Lilladol. And then the same thing happened with Creative Catalyst. The, the founder of Creative Catalyst died and her husband called Ralph Lilladol and said, what should I do? And he said, have R Eric take it over. So <laughs> we took it over. And uh, so anybody who, anybody who's dying and they want us to take something over, just call. <laughs> I wondered how, yeah, because I kept seeing them both and I was like, how are they okay? Yeah. I don't know who they're going to call when I go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I have to call 10 people, Eric. 
I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you. I just, I can't thank you enough for this interview. It's been wonderful chatting with you and can't wait to meet you when you come out, especially to the series gallery in Portsmouth. We'll like roll out the red carpet. <laughs> so I got to tell you, I got to tell you a quick story. Yeah. Um, we have triplets. Yes. And uh, my wife was pulling her hair out. Uh, we had never taken any kind of a trip and she's pulling her hair out and she said, we, you know, we need to, we need to go somewhere. We need to do something. So we, um, we took the triplets. They were about, well, they were still in diapers. I don't know what age they were. They're probably two, something like that. And uh, we went and visited her mom and, in Connecticut. And then we drove up the coast and we drove, we went to uh, the Wentworth out there. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and we pulled up there like eight o'clock at night. We we're exhausted. The kids were screaming. We need, we just didn't know it was a nice hotel. We just needed a hotel. And, uh, and I walked into the lobby of this place and I felt like I needed a tuxedo and I, you know, I was in a t-shirt and shorts and looked like a tourist from hell and I said, you know, we have three, three babies. And he said, sir, we can't, we can't accommodate in this hotel. He said, but we do have these uh, like little apartments over on the water in the marina across the street. And he said, you could rent one of those. We have one of those open. So I said, yay. So we went there and we stayed there a couple of days. Um, I got up that morning at five o'clock in the morning to paint wow. and the color of the light in Portsmouth is unlike any light I've ever seen. It was the, the color of the morning light was like a coral, a coral color. I can't, I can't articulate it. And I've never forgotten that color. And I remember wandering into a gallery in downtown Portsmouth, and there was a, a particular painter whose name I can't remember. And that painter had that coral color in her paintings. Mm -hmm. And I'm kicking myself for not buying one of them because mm -hmm. I don't know who it was. But I've never forgotten that light. Yeah. And, um, and we went back there again and repeated that a few years later. And, you know, that same light was there. And I got up and I painted it. And, you know, it's, it's marvelous light. There's something about the filtration of the salt air and, and, just, you know, the angle of the sun that time of year, whatever it was, it was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm blessed to live about 10 minutes from there. So <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Beautiful area. So we will welcome you back and they will let you stay there this time. Yeah. <laughs> <In the hotel. laughs> well, only if I don't bring the babies. What a funny story. Love it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd probably rather pay my mortgage than to pay up for a room at that yeah, place. True. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so very much. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored that you would have me on, Laura, and you're doing a great service. And, and thank you to everybody yeah. in, in the East Coast who is, um, is painting. And, and I'd like to just encourage everybody to um, look for a way to, uh, to, you know, whatever you look for, you find. And look for a way to find people who want to learn how to paint and help them. Uh, people will be timid about it. They might come up to you, but they won't say exactly what they're thinking. But if you can just get them engaged, like that guy got me engaged early on, you get them engaged for one or two minutes, you might change their life. Yeah.
Very true. Very true. We will do it. All right. Good. Marching orders. Yes. All right. <laughs> we will see you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you found inspiration from today's show, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and share it with a friend or two on social media. Also, take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes or share your takeaways from today's show on artistsofnewengland.com under today's episode. And while you're there, you'll find links to the topics mentioned in today's show. And don't forget to peruse the growing library of podcasts and resources. Thanks for listening. You got beauty to share with the world that no other human has. So get in the ring and pick up that brush.